The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Monday, June 15th, 2015. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca, and I am white. I do understand the question. I get the question. I ask some people that question. They'll say, are you African-American? I don't, I don't understand the question. Of, I did tell you that, yes, that's my dad. And he was unable to come in January. But I comprehend the question. I can answer that question. I am a white man. Now, I've come to the understanding that the second part of that answer, the man part, that is subject to change. I don't think it will for me, but you never know. Also, don't judge. Or do judge when it comes to the first part to Rachel Dolezal. Rachel Dolezal, who today resigned her post as head of Tacoma's chapter of the NAACP. Now, the NAACP clarifies that they have no requirement that any of their officials be of any particular race But I wanted to know, is there a chapter president who is white? I emailed the NAACP and they have not gotten back to me. Maybe other people are asking them questions today also. Now, I know that Rachel Dolezal's case is complicated. I know that there's been this tradition of passing, code switching, but passing is the phrase that preceded that. And it's usually passing for white. It's going from the less privileged to the greater privileged. It's a one-way street of acceptability. The criticism of Dolezal is, one, that she lied, and that's not good but also that she took positions, maybe a teaching position, maybe the presidency of the Tacoma chapter, maybe a spot on the police relations board there in Tacoma, maybe that she took those positions from an actual, you know, black person who was born with some black parents. Although, what about judging a person based not on the color of their skin, but I'm not going to say content of their character. We can't say that given the deception involved. But what about the, the quality of the work the person does? What if, and this does seem to be the case, that she was doing a good job, that she literally used her associations for the advancement of people of color? Well, maybe the answer is something along these lines saying that Al Gore has done a lot to fight global warming, and yet he never pretended to be an actual spotted owl or a polar bear or an iceberg. Maybe that's true. What about the fact that race is a construct? Sure, it's a construct, but it seems like Rachel didn't have the zoning variances to construct this particular structure. What about the one-drop rule? Isn't that idea that we in America defined blackness so rigidly that one drop of black blood disqualified you as full-fledged white, quote-unquote, I'm doing the quotes. Maybe Dolezal looked at the one-drop rule and said, my God, I am only one drop away from that one-drop rule. That's really not so much. Maybe she was lying about a lie. That's what Jelani Cobb says in the New Yorker. Read it. It is the best thing I've read about Rachel Dolezal. The right has taken glee. The left, the most prominent black voices that I've seen, they've taken great umbrage. I think this is a fascinating story that makes us ask, is a hypocrisy of a hypocrisy a kind of truth or an even more hideous lie? On the show today, there are two words that I like saying next to each other, Google loon. And in the spiel, two words that shouldn't be preceded by a third word. We'll check in and give a report card on who says Magna Carta and who says the Magna Carta. A just investigation. But first, let's loon. <laughs> Loon, loon, a group of aquatic birds found in many parts of North America and northern Eurasia. Loon, also on the back of the Canadian coins, loon wrapper. I was also not aware, until a couple weeks ago, of 
Project Loon, Google's Project Loon. And people become aware of Project Loon in the strangest ways, like balloons crash in their backyards or they think they see a UFO. In fact, it's Project Loon. Joining me now is Will Aremus, who uh, is our resident loon. He writes about tech for Slate. Hey, Will, how's it going? It's going well. There's, there's actually another loon that I just thought of today while what? I was preparing for this segment. It means moon, right, in French? Does it mean, is, is loon oh, moon yeah. in French? Yeah. Yeah, well, Google mm-hmm. is all about moonshots, right? So it just occurred to me today that Project Loon is a moonshot. They're really working on a different level. <laughs> all right, define what, what Project Loon is and why are there balloons and why does Google want to launch a bunch of balloons? First of all, because they're just weird. I mean, it's, it's a weird project. They admit it themselves. That's why they called it Project Loon. It's a crazy oh. idea. The idea is, look, it's hard to get internet to uh, rural regions. It's hard to get internet to poor people in a way that makes sense business-wise. Um, it's not cheap to put cell towers everywhere around the world. What if there's a different way? And the idea was they could send these balloons 60,000 feet up into the sky. They would beam down a signal, and you could get it on the ground and, and connect to the internet. Yeah, so it is a crazy idea. And if I describe to you, I'll read how uh, Wired described it. Project Loom balloons would circle the globe in rings, connecting wirelessly to the internet via a handful of ground stations and pass signals to one another in a kind of daisy chain. Now, if I told you that, you know, Newt Gingrich backed this idea, you'd be like, oh my God, that's nuts. If I even told you Yahoo was behind this, you'd say it's nuts because it's Google. We'd say maybe Tesla, but pretty much Google's the only company we're like, that could work. Could it work? I think that's right. Yeah, I think it could work. I mean, look, I don't think uh, nobody can tell you that it's definitely going to work. Google itself won't tell you that it's definitely going to work. But I talked to the guy behind the project for Google, uh, a guy named Mike Cassidy, and I asked him about a year ago, look, all right, tell me really now. Do you really think this is going to work? What are the chances uh, that this is that this is going to succeed and people are going to be getting Internet this way? Um, and he admitted, he said, you know, look, when we first started, I, I would have said 5%. He said, but we keep going and going. We haven't run into anything yet that makes it impossible. He wouldn't tell me a number, but he said, I think it's looking pretty good. It's, it's somewhat realistic, and the reason is because Google just has such immense resources. I mean, something goes wrong. Uh, the first 50 that they sent up there into the sky, they either leaked or blew up. They keep trying. I mean, they've got this whole uh, Google X lab yeah. where the whole job is just to come up with crazy ideas and see if they can make them work. And believe it or not, they're actually starting to work. They've already exceeded a lot of the milestones that people didn't think they could meet, like getting the balloons to stay in the air for 100 days at a time. Is this altruism for them, or is there, is it kind of redound to their bottom line in some way? I don't think they know yet. I mean, I think Google, these Google projects start out basically just as, here's something that might be possible that nobody thought was possible. They're always thinking, Google engineers like to think in terms of orders of magnitudes. They like to think, you know, what can we do that's, that's 10x cheaper, 100x cheaper, or reach 10x or 100x more people than what's being done today. And so they just try it, and then they'll find out. You know, Gmail was an experiment that some Google engineer came up with on his, on his off time. He said, what if we could build an email client that didn't force you to delete your emails? What if you could keep them all? Yeah. You know, could we do that? And, and it sounded crazy at the time, and it, it wasn't necessarily uh, seen as a moneymaker at the time, but now Gmail is a huge moneymaker. They eventually put ads in there. So who knows? Yeah, I mean, I think ultimately Google will try to make money from it if it works. Um, I think there's some altruism involved. I also think there's some ego involved. I mean, these companies, Google foremost among them, these Silicon Valley companies, like to think that they're not just you know, advertising businesses uh, profiting off of people's personal data. They like to think that they're somehow changing the world. This is a chance for them to try to back that up. Google has almost limitless resources, but is this thing extremely expensive? 
it's expensive for them to do. You know, it's expensive. I mean, to, is it to, an exp- is it going to be like once it's all done? Hey, it works, and now we just spent you know fifteen thousand dollars per subscriber to get some on the internet. Does, yeah. Is that really fitting the you know, definition it, of works? Right. Well, if if they get to that point, if they if they realize that it's going to cost that much per subscriber, they just, they'll, they'll kill it. You know, yeah. they've done that with projects before. They come up with something that sounds amazing, turns out it kind of stinks. They kill it off and they move on. They have no qualms about that. But no, their idea is that this will actually be significantly cheaper than putting up a cell tower. It, it sounds that sounds crazy, uh, but but they tell me that it is uh, you know a fraction of the price in order in terms of like delivering internet to a place in rural India to have these balloons circling overhead because they don't require much power. They, they're solar powered. All they have to do is, is move them up and down and then the wind currents will take them uh, along a path that can keep delivering the internet. What about atmosphere? Will your internet go out if there is a storm? Yeah, quite possibly. It's not designed to be super reliable internet. It's it's designed to be a stopgap. It's designed to be better than what's out there now. And what this guy Cassidy told me, the Google guy who's in charge of the project, was, you know, he went to India and saw that there were people who were getting their internet when an intercity bus that is a Wi-Fi hotspot would come through their village. Yeah. They would all crowd around the bus, download their text messages from the past three days, and, and that was their internet access. The idea is, here, it's better than that, and it's cheaper than actually building cell towers. Let's give it a shot. And so these balloons, every once in a while, do crash land. Is that going to be a problem? <laughs> I don't know. They, they claim it hasn't been a problem so far. They'll say, you know, some farmer will will see this thing land in their field and, and freak out, uh, but then they, they they put little signs on it and they tell them who to call and then they can say, oh, this is part of our project. And they say that the reaction, like people are excited. People are like happy to have some crazy balloon land in their field. Are the balloons high enough so that they're above the clouds or, well, a lightning yeah, strike? Yeah, they're, they're, they're way up there. They're in the stratosphere. They're at 60,000 feet. What's interesting about that is that, you know, it would be hard enough if you could actually steer these balloons left and right. You can't do that. You can only you know, either add altitude or lose altitude and hope that you're hitting a wind current that takes you in, a right, in the right direction. So they use these super complicated algorithms to try to uh, capture the wind currents at various altitudes and get all the balloons to stay in line because it's no good if a balloon goes overhead for a few minutes and then it blows off course and another one doesn't come right behind it. And they've tried this in New Zealand. Well, New Zealand's South Island, which is a rural part of New Zealand, if such a redundancy can be imagined. Yeah, they're doing it in the Southern Hemisphere because for it to work, the easiest way for it to work, you know, the balloons don't stay still. They're continuously uh, circling the globe. And so you have to basically build a ring around the globe. And it was just easiest to do that in the Southern Hemisphere because the globe is smaller there. Right? You have to go as far. Right. So we could get internet to Antarctica, no problem. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I, I, in fact... Penguins, uh, just all sorts of wired up. That's, that should be their next step. Absolutely. Will Aramis is Slate's senior technology writer. Thank you, Will. Thanks, Mike. <laughs> and now... Listeners, I want to I wanna tell you something. This is bonus coverage. I was just chatting to Will after the interview was over, and he told me a detail. We have to get to this detail. It's about the helium and the leakage, and it gives me an idea. But go ahead, Will. What were you telling me? All right, so I told you how the first 50 times Google launched these balloons, it didn't work. They either blew up or they just slowly sank back to Earth before they could do any good. Well, one of the main reasons they were slowly sinking back to Earth is they had these microscopic leaks, and just a tiny bit of helium would seep out, and that was enough to bring the whole thing down. The reason this was happening, apparently, was that the workers had to walk on the balloons while they were folding them up and transporting them and all that kind of thing. So they made the workers wear these 
really soft, fluffy socks. Apparently, that significantly cut down on the holes in the balloons, and that's part of why they're now working much better. Now we cut to, we have actual audio of interactions between the Google Loon Balloon Folders and their four men. Your attention, your attention, please, Loon workers. You are mandated to wear these socks while working. I gotta tell you, Jim, I do not like wearing these socks. Full compliance is mandatory, given outbreaks of certain lighter-than-air gases. Jim, I do not understand why we are wearing these socks. I do not like these socks. I am humiliated. In fact, I'm a representative of Teamsters Local 482. Actually, right now you are sounding more like a representative of the Lollipop Guild. They can hear me? This is not right. These socks are humiliating and the guy on the loudspeaker is listening in. I do not like this. And now the spiel, the the index. Today is the 800th anniversary of the signing of the Magna Carta. No, it's not. It's the 800th anniversary of the signing of Magna Carta. There is no the. It's a Latin thing. We have documented this before on the gist. We have provided the definitive exploration of the definite article preceding or not, as the case would be, Magna Carta. Most U.S. newspapers now are saying Magna Carta, not the Magna Carta. But what about the talkers? What are they literally saying? Let's check in. Here's CNN. One of the four original copies of Magna Carta from 1215. CNN says Magna Carta. CBS, Ankenora O'Donnell. King John ratified the Magna Carta. Nope. What about the reporter who's actually in England? Hastily scribbled on a single page of parchment, Magna Carta, great charter in Latin. CBS correspondent in England, yup. All right, what about Fox? Here's the anchor. Today marks the 800th anniversary of the signing of the Magna Carta. Nope. What about the reporter who's actually in England? He said that the Magna Carta altered the balance of power between the governed and government. Also, nope. But wait, David Cameron did not say those things about the Magna Carta. He said them about Magna Carta. Listen. Magna Carta introduced the idea that we should write these things down and live by them. Magna Carta is something every person in Britain should be proud of. So I understand that anchor people in New York see the copy, some dorky copy guy says Magna Carta, and the anchor says, oh, that's wrong. Or maybe the anchor says, look, regular people just call it the Magna Carta, and that's the way I'm going to say it. I'm going to say it the way regular people want to hear it. But the reporters who are there at the ceremony note that everyone in England says just Magna Carta, and they've been at a ceremony where 100 people in a row have said Magna Carta, so they go with Magna Carta except on Fox. And that doesn't surprise me either. They are not going to drop the the. Because, you know, the war on Christmas did good ratings. And when Christmas isn't around, well, you look at the phrase, the war on Christmas, can't do much with the on. But what about the? Yes, we could have the war on the. And you stand up for the, and you put it before the Magna Carta, and the Fox viewers feel vindicated. But what you don't do is you don't put a the before David Cameron's words. This is an Eton man who once had to copy 500 lines of Latin text as a punishment for smoking pot. Disparate sentencing laws, by the way, meant that non-Eton men had to copy lines of cuneiform on clay, much less fair. But in David Cameron, we're talking about a member of the aristocracy. You know, he's a lineal descendant of King William IV. Do not put the 
in the mouth of the David Cameron. He, sir, is no member of Hoi Polloi. And that's it for today's show. The personal misrepresentations of producer Andrea Salenzi include exiting an all-you-can-eat restaurant despite not eating all she could. Managing producer Joel Meyer once sang along to the song Bad Mama Jamma, and while he's bad, he has hardly ever jammed a mama. Executive producer Andy Bowers once attended a hoedown despite being neither. The gist, sadly, we entered a mother-daughter talent show despite not being a mother, having a daughter, or having talent. And it showed. But you know who does have talent in droves? A group called They Might Be Giants. The number to call for dial a song is 844-387-6962. But that's more of a Tuesday to the next Monday morning type of number. Because each Monday afternoon, we on The Gist give you a world debut They Might Be Giants song. Now this one, about certain events concerning a self-driving car, was originally featured on the original They Might Be Giants dial a song. But now it has been redone, remastered, and made all the more eerie via the passage of time. Ladies and gentlemen, they might be giants with the summer breeze. Hey, you might want to check out this podcast, also part of the Panoply Network. On the latest episode of our national conversation about conversations about race, uh, we have three co-hosts diving into a number of subjects, including myself, Baratunde Thurston. Our normal co-host, Raquel Cepeda, is out, but Anand Girdardas is in, and Tanner Colby is with us. We talked about a bunch of things, like such as... Beautiful hafus. The Bamboo Ceiling. And Everybody Draw Muhammad Day. So check us out at showaboutrace.com or find us in iTunes.